Good evening. Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention. Verses 10 through 13 of chapter 1 of what we call Paul's first letter to the Church of God in Corinth. It's been a few weeks since we were last here, and so let me refresh us with a little review of where we are. Paul has introduced his letter to this troubled church in Corinth. Corinth is quite a cosmopolitan city with all of the temptations that come with wealth and influence and power, and the church, as we'll see throughout this letter, has fallen prey to many of those temptations. And tonight we'll begin to wade into the waters of division and disunity, of factions and fractures that have arisen in the church and are one of the principal reasons for Paul to pen this letter. The church has become divided and is in jeopardy of splintering if something is not done. And as we'll come to see, this is not a new temptation, nor has the temptation abated. The temptation towards division and disunity among God's people started back with Satan in the garden, and it certainly persists Today, it's a perennial problem and a temptation for the church of God. No human relationship is immune to it, and thus we must be on guard against it, especially within the church. And so let's begin by reading 1 Corinthians 1. I'll read 10 through 17, but we'll be focusing on those first three verses. Hear the word of our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that none of you may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and perfect word for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you do what only you can do, that you would bring together your church through the proclamation of your word and the working of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. Make us more like Christ. Make us one in Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin by noticing in verse 10 Paul's peaceable approach to the situation. Paul's peaceable approach approach to the problem. Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I appeal to you. I exhort you. I beseech you. I could even say, I beg of you, my brothers and sisters. He's pleading for unity rather than disunity, to be of the same mind rather than each one being of his own mind. And note particularly that he grounds the argument in Christ's authority and in clear theological reasoning. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's not using his personal apostolic authority, which would have been permissible. He had apostolic authority, but he didn't want to stir the pot in that area. The congregation was already splitting between factions and had their preferred allegiances to some men above others. And Paul knew that certain Corinthian believers would be tempted to follow Paul or not follow Paul on the basis of human authority or preference. And so he takes the wise path of gently asserting the authority of Christ, not his own name. He sought to be peaceable rather than inflammatory. And notice his method of persuasion in this passage. He uses gentle probing questions rather than using truth and authority like mallets to smash the opposition. In verse 13, we read three different questions meant to rhetorically guide the listener to the truth. He's applying great wisdom, knowing from Proverbs that a gentle answer turns away wrath and a soft word breaks bone. He could have used his authority to declare directly where they were wrong and blast them out of the water. And as we'll see later in this book, he's not afraid to use the truth in that way when necessary. But he shows here great wisdom, tactfulness even, gentle peaceableness rather than brash rhetoric or condescending lecturing to get the Corinthians to arrive at the truth. He's very much like Christ in this regard. Think about it. Christ would get people to arrive at the truth often by simply asking questions. Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus responded with what? A question. Whose image is on the money? Caesar? Well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what is his. Or when he's challenged by the chief priests about John the Baptist's authority, he responds with a question. From where where did John the Baptist's baptisms come from? From heaven or earth? And he stuck them in a pickle. He arrived to a truth by simply asking a question. He guided to the truth often by using questions. And we could list more that he asked. The point is that gentle, penetrating questions can be a very wise way for people to engage in disagreement in a way that diffuses tension and can aid clarity, aid peacemaking, rather than stirring the pot with declaratives or imperatives. So the question for us to consider is, do we engage in disagreements in such a way, in a peaceable way? Am I a gentle peacemaker? Do I bring resolution and restoration? Or does my method of disagreeing with others ratchet up the hostility and the resentment? Some believers, often the most mature believers, I think, are actually a blessing to disagree with because they're so peaceable and gentle, even in the midst of a disagreement. Have you met someone like that? They're actually pleasant to discuss and differ with because they're gentle and peaceable of spirit. Are you like that? Are people blessed by you, even in the midst of disagreement? Or do, you, or do people avoid discussing anything controversial around you because they're weary of hearing you correct them, weary of hearing you jump on a soapbox, weary of hearing you give your opin- opinion? Are you quarrelsome, argumentative, or are you peaceable like Christ? Let me give us five quick indicators that tell us we might be quarrelsome rather than gentle and peaceable. Number one, a quarrelsome person is quick to speak and slow to listen. A quarrelsome person is quick to speak and slow to listen. They have no need to listen because they already know it all. And therefore, they're prepared to speak even without letting the other person finish what they're saying. 
quarrelsome person speaks quickly and listens very slowly. Second, a quarrelsome person sees everything in black and white. He sees everything in black and white rather than seeing things with nuances, with carefulness, with shades of gray. There's no gray in their world. There's no complicating circumstances. There's no room for liberty or charity with dealing with others. No possibility of even conceiving the other person's position. All matters are simple, cut and dry. A quarrelsome person sees everything in black and white. Third, a quarrelsome person thinks everything is a big deal. A quarrelsome person thinks everything's a big deal. Every disagreement is a hill to die on. Every theological discussion seems to become a Martin Luther 95 Theses moment. Every mistake by someone else is a clear example of apostasy and the downgrade of the church. There are no small things. There are no little errors worthy of gentle correction. Everything is a big deal. Fourth, a quarrelsome person assumes the worst of other people. A quarrelsome person assumes the worst of other people. He never gives the benefit of the doubt. He always interprets motives and context and intentions in the worst possible way. They spin every situation and every word in a way that makes their opponents to look like a fool. In any disagreement, they treat others in a way that they would never put up with. A quarrelsome person assumes the worst about other people. And fifth, a quarrelsome person often has one lens through which they view the world. A quarrelsome person can have one lens through which they view the world. Writing on a quarrelsome person, Kevin DeYoung described this person in such a way. He said, they have a small grid and everything fits within it. They view life through a tiny prism such that they already know what everything is about. Everything is a social justice issue or everything relates to the regulative principle or everything is Obama's fault or everything is related to Trump or it's all about the feminists or about patriarchy or how my parents messed up my life. He says, when all you have is a hammer, the rest of the world looks like a nail. A quarrelsome person has only one lens through which he views the world. And brothers and sisters, if we're honest about ourselves, we are all tempted to be quarrelsome, to be pugnacious rather than peaceable, to be combative rather than cooperative, to be contentious rather than connecting. And what does God say about such behavior? Proverbs 6 tells us that one of the things that God hates is one who sows discord or disunity among the brothers. In Titus 3, Paul tells Titus to warn the divisive person twice and then have nothing to do with them. Send them out. And Jude, in verse 19, speaks of those who cause divisions as, quote, worldly ones, devoid of the Spirit. Worldly ones, ones who don't even possess God's Holy Spirit. That's because to unnecessarily divide is to not act of the Spirit, but of the flesh. It's to act as if the devil is our father, the original divider, rather than God being our heavenly father. But praise be to God that Christ was a gentle peacemaker. He wasn't divisive and combative towards others. He didn't sow seeds of division or bear the fruit of prideful quarrelsomeness. James says in chapter 3 that heavenly wisdom is pure, peaceable, gentle, 
open to reason and full of mercy. And that describes Christ to a T. Pure, peaceable, gentle, full of mercy. Christ is heavenly wisdom. He's peaceable and gentle, not quick-tempered, not irritable, not blinded by rage and frustration. Jesus describes himself in Matthew 11 as meek and lowly of heart or gentle and lowly of heart. He's not combative. He's not critical. He's not corrective and condescending. He's not demanding and domineering. He won't bash you with frustration when you sin again. He doesn't condescendingly call you out and then crush you with the weight of your own inadequacy. He gently shows you your mistake. He skillfully uses his law to cut to the heart and to remind you again of his love for you. His, in fact, his showing you your sin is an evidence of his love for you. He points it out so that you can be redirected back to him. He cuts in order to heal. He disciplines out of compassion rather than chastising out of shame. One author puts it this way. He says, Christ is our gentle guide who enables us to see just enough of our sin to awaken us, but not so much to drive us into despair. He brings out our hidden motives into the light, but he answers them with his precious promises. He enlightens and then encourages. He convicts in order to comfort. He exposes in order to heal. In sum, Christ is our perfect peacemaker. He's the one who has made us to be at peace with God, as Romans 5 reminds us. And he continues to work in and through his Holy Spirit to conform us to his very own image and to unify his people through his own spirit of peace. That's our gentle and peaceable Christ. He doesn't inflame and irritate. He restores and reconciles. Come to him tonight and see that he's the epitome of peaceableness. In fact, he's called in scripture the prince of peace. He's ready and willing to restore you with all gentleness and meekness, not with shame and a raised voice, but with a kind touch and a warm heart. But also, we must be aware that this offer of peace does expire. Christ will not offer his peace to you forever. You see, he will return not with a message of peace on his lips, but with a declaration of war. He will return, Scripture says, wielding the sword of judgment for all of those divisive and quarrelsome souls, those who fractured and split, those who promoted tribes, those who divided rather than united. Don't wait until that day when it will be too late. Come to Christ tonight and know that he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Lamb who is our Savior, lest you wait and know him on that last day merely as the Lion of Judgment. Next, we've seen Paul's peaceable approach. Let's look at the problem itself. The problem itself, and that's divisions and disunity. Verse 10 again. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and of the same judgment. There should be no divisions. There should be rather unity. But sadly, we've all often experienced in the church and in other relationships the opposite of unity. We experience ruptured relationships, cracked communion, fractured fellowship, all because of some sin in the situation. Because of our sinful hearts, we can be tempted to take things that should not conflict and put them and make them at odds. 
Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, says that so liable are the best things in the world to be corrupted, and the gospel and its institutions, like the church, which are at harmony with themselves and with one another, to be made engines of variance, discord, and contention. This is no reproach to our religion, but it is a very sad evidence of the corruption and the depravity of our human nature. Note how far pride will carry Christians in opposition to one another, even so far as to set Christ and his own apostles at variance and make them rivals and competitors. No true Christian wants to be that kind of person, a person that takes peace and unity and sacrifices them on the altar of pride and preference. So you may ask, well, how can we practically promote this disunity? What are the things that we do that we want to avoid? If division and disunity is something we want to stay away from, how can we practically battle against them? Well, there, let me give us three practical ways that division is fostered in relationships. Three ways that disunity is promoted. And the first is gossip. Gossip destroys gospel community. It shuts down communication. It retards transparency and vulnerability. People don't want to open up and be real if they're afraid that they're going to be gossiped about. And gossip is a thrice-harming offense. Gospel harms the speaker, the hearer, and the one being slandered. Gossip destroys unity. A second way we can promote disunity is by acting like we can see it all. Acting like we can see it all. Assuming that we understand all the dynamics of whatever the situation is. It's a kind of presumed omniscience that destroys relationships. Related to what I said before about a quarrelsome person, situations in life are rarely ever simple. They are rarely black and white. There are layers of dynamics. People have different backgrounds, different experiences. They're operating with different strengths and giftings. They're operating in different contexts with varying motives and intentions. But we can be tempted to assume that we understand all of those dynamics. We have a few bits of information and we can fill in the holes. We can extrapolate the data based upon our wisdom and intuit all the facts and then therefore jump to the conclusion based upon our incomplete data. But this kind of behavior is unloving. It's usually even uncharitable. It's easy for us to assume the worst in people. We can think that we know what they're thinking. We can think that we know what they're trying to do. We act as if we see everything clearly. We can perceive a person's heart. And we act really as if we're God. We promote disunity by acting like we can see it all. A third way to promote disunity and divisions and related to the previous point is thinking that we have all the right answers. Thinking that we have all the right answers to whatever this problem is. This person always has an opinion and always seems to be offering it even though no one actually asked. They have the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom to engage in any area of life with an opinion that should be regarded of the highest weight regardless of the situation. In fact, they've never known a field of knowledge or an area of life in which they weren't an expert. This is the kind of person that's always thinking and often saying, I told you so. 
If they had just listened to me, they wouldn't be in this mess. They're frustrated when people don't ask their opinion. They're even more frustrated when people don't take their opinion and run with it. They get mad when people choose a different course of action, don't do things the way they would have. Thinking that we have all the right answers promotes disunity and division. And so gossiping, acting like we can see it all and acting like we know it all are three foolproof ways to blow up a church. It was true in Corinth and it's true today. And if you've been paying attention, there's been a common thread throughout these first two points. A thread that ties together a divisive, quarrelsome person and gossips and those who seem to have all the right answers. And that common thread is pride. Pride is the root that ties all of this together. Pride is the root of divisions and divisiveness in the church and in all of life. Pride is the root of the problem. Problem. Proverbs 13.10 says that only by pride comes contention. Or we could say, where there is strife, division, conflict, there is pride. Pride blows up churches, it ruptures families, and it divides the best of friends. Let's think about pride in terms of the sins listed above. A gossiper is a proud person. He or she thinks they can talk about others in a way that they would never want to be talked about and in a way that they try and act innocent about. A proud person thinks he can see the whole situation and comprehend it all. He has the intuition, the wisdom, the discernment to see the end from the beginning. And a proud person thinks and acts like he knows it all. He has the solution to everyone's problems. He knows how the church could run. He knows how the government should run. He knows how family members ought to behave. It's all pride. But the wonderful news of the gospel is that Christ was not proud. In fact, he was perfectly humble. Even though he could see right to the heart, he could see all the aspects of the situation, he did know the end from the beginning, he didn't lord it over people and unlovingly demand that they act according to his preferences. Now, Scripture says that he came not to be served, but to serve, to lower himself. He came and he didn't act proud, but in fact, he died for the proud. He died for the boastful and the arrogant like me and like you. He hung on the cross for those who would never on their own bow the knee to him. He sought out the high-handed rebels and the insolent egos. If you find yourself convicted by pride again, if you're starting to see that you like to thrust your opinion on others before hearing all the facts, that you act like you know all of the situation and have all of the answers, then I want to encourage you to linger here on Christ's humility. Hear again of Christ's lowliness of heart. Read the Gospels and take note of how he responded to people who should have known better, to those who would eventually call for his own crucifixion. See how gentle he was towards them, how patient he was, how kind he was, how long-suffering he was. That same humble heart is waiting for you today. He's still long-suffering and gentle towards those that approach him with repentance. Scripture says that a humble and contrite heart he will not despise, regardless of what sins we've done or how long we've run from him or how ugly we've behaved. Come back to Christ, our great, humble high priest 
and have your sins washed again and your relationships restored. Have your heart made right. Only then can you seek to bring about any lasting unity and peace among the people of God. You see, peacemakers in the church aren't born that way. They're not that way because they've mastered certain techniques and studied enough sociological dynamics. Peacemakers are born of the Spirit. And they're remade into the image of Christ Himself, which means that God, through His Holy Spirit, can make you a peacemaker instead of a proud divider. Which means that the promise that Christ made in His Sermon on the Mount can be for you. He said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Come to Christ tonight and be restored, and you too can be made a peacemaker and a son of God Himself. Next, Moving on to my third and final point. We've seen Paul's peaceable approach. We've seen the problem itself of disunity and division. Now let's look specifically at Paul's solution to the problem. Paul's solution to the problem of divisions. To put it succinctly, Paul's solution to the problem of divisions and disunity is to think. To think specifically about Christ. The solution to divisions in the church is to consider Christ. Paul is here highlighting a practical problem, disunity among the body, and addresses it with a theological solution. This is consistent with what he's done multiple times in this letter, and he will continue to do. You see a problem in the church and show how their thinking is wrong in that area. We often think that practical on-the-ground fussing is purely in the realm of indifference or preference or Christian liberty, but our theology should and must connect to how we behave, especially in the church. And so what theological correction does he make to solve their practical problem? Well, he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? A solution is to remember Christ is not divided. Therefore, his body must not be divided. His response to tribalism is a rhetorical question with a clearly implied no. Is Christ divided? No. Neither should you be. Christ is not internally conflicted. He's fully God and fully man. He's the God-man, but there was no conflict of wills within Him, no tearing within Him. His will was perfectly aligned with the Father's, and therefore there was no hint of division or conflict within Him. Further, Christ has no division in His actions. He doesn't teach one thing, and then lead another way. He doesn't promise one thing and then bring up about another thing. His lips and his hands are always in sync, we could say. Indeed, we'd be wise to press that theological truth a little further and say specifically that Christ is not leading one way and his spirit leading another. Christ and his spirit share the same divine essence, including the same divine will. Thus, it would be inconceivable for Christ to lead his church one way in a way that was not consistent with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so what does that mean for us? It means that Christ is unified, undivided, perfectly in sync with His Spirit, which He then sends to build up His church in a unified, undivided way. But Paul doesn't stop with observing Christ's nature. He goes on in verse 13 to ask a couple more questions. Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Two more rhetorical questions with an implied no. 
He's tying together not merely Christ's undivided essence, but Christ's role as head of the church. Christ purchased the church through his death, and Christ is proclaimed as head over all of his people. And if Christ is the head, that means that no other person is, not even Paul. We can consider Christ as head of the church in two different ways, two complementary ways. Christ is head in terms of source, and head in terms of authority. Head is source and head is authority. Let's look briefly at each. When we speak of Christ as head of the church, we can highlight the fact that he's the source, the fountainhead, the original spring of life for all of his people. That means that Christ is the reason that the Corinthians were there. Christ is the reason that we are here. That means that no other man is your source of life. Pastor Sean is not your source of spiritual life. John English is not your head. Neither was Greg Belser or Philip Wise or Hayden Center or Louis Armstrong, all of our previous pastors here. Neither is John Calvin or Martin Luther or Augustine or even Paul. Christ is the source. He is the head. He is the fountain and spring of all spiritual life. And we ought to act accordingly. We can't let allegiances divide us. Allegiances among different men in the church, or outside the church for that matter. Indeed, we can and should have spiritual mentors. And Paul even speaks of his own spiritual children in the faith. But Paul would be the first to point out that whatever spiritual blessing that he's given to others is purely derivative of what he's received in Christ. Christ is the fountainhead of all grace, not Paul. And any spiritual blessing you've received from another man is first and foremost from the hand of Christ himself. And therefore, our allegiances must be grounded in Christ's spiritual priority. Whenever the church starts to splinter, to fracture and follow personalities, Christ's priority as head and source is obscured and often forgotten. May we never fall prey to that temptation. But I think Paul is highlighting another theological truth behind his questions. Christ is being spoken of as head, not merely in terms of spiritual source, but also in terms of authority. You're not baptized in the name of Paul. You're not given a new name in baptism based upon the person that baptizes you. No, you're baptized in the triune name of God himself. That's the crucial part of your baptism, not the water and not the guy doing the dunking. It's the name, the name in which you're being baptized. God in Christ is your spiritual king. He is your spiritual leader. He is your head. He's to be your ultimate authority and your final loyalty. No other man should take that role. In fact, no other allegiance should come close to our allegiance to Christ. But because of our sinful hearts, we're tempted to put our faith in men. We're tempted to put our hopes in this guy or that guy. Even godly men can become idols. We can hang on their every word. We can consider everything they do as the right way to do things. We can consider their every word as the gospel truth. We have de facto made them our Messiah. We don't know what we do without them. We're not sure that the church could stand losing them. We're not sure we could survive without their spiritual nurture. And this can arise from a man within the church or somewhere else. Maybe a pastor or teacher we see on TV. Could be a preacher we hear on podcasts or somebody we listen to on YouTube. 
we can spend greater eagerness and more time listening to them than we would even listen to Christ speaking through his word. We can forget that Christ is our head. He is our authority. He is our king. And when we do that, we don't merely exist without a king. We don't have the capacity to live without a king. We have some kind of controlling authority. But what we do to ourselves is make for ourselves a new king who isn't Christ. That's what Adam did in the garden. Adam disregarded God's role as creator and king, as spiritual head, and he replaced God as his head with Satan as his new head. And so too has every man since. We take for granted and ignore God's work as our creative source and as king over creation. We ignore to our own detriment our spiritual head and we instead replace him with other idols of our own making. Our head can be the world with its ideas and opinions. Our head can be giving undue influence to any man. Our head can become even the talking heads we see on TV. could be some political leader or somebody really cool in Hollywood that we really want to be like. But brothers and sisters, know this, that Christ died for sinners who disregard his role as source and king. He died for those who ignored the spiritual head. He bore the penalty for usurpers like me and like you. He suffered in the place for idol worshipers and deserters like us. And so in closing, be reminded that Christ was perfectly faithful in our place. He was undivided in heart and in actions. He was the faithful one. He fully fulfilled the law of God and fulfilled all righteousness. He was peaceable of heart and uniting in all of his speech. In short, Christ was the true and blessed peacemaker who is blessed above all as the true son of God. And because of his blessedness, we too can be called sons of God if we but come to him by faith. Let me pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the gift of forgiveness that we have in Christ. Thank you that he died for those who are quarrelsome of heart, who are proud and arrogant. Remind us often of his humility, of his great love for us. Wash us and restore us that we might go from here as peacemakers, as humble and lowly of heart as our great Savior was for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We're going to close tonight by singing the doxology. Let's stand. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.